Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 14 on page 782. This morning we continue in our sermon series on the book of Acts, this account of the early church under the leadership of the apostles. The good news of Jesus has spread out from Jerusalem where it began, out into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and now is beginning to go to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promised his disciples in some of his last words in chapter 1, verse 8. Today's passage continues to describe Paul's first missionary journey. He's with his partner Barnabas, and uh, they uh, are moving around from town to town in modern-day Turkey, continuing to proclaim God's Word. We'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 14. Listen carefully. These are God's words. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. 
after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these details of mission. It's what you call us on, every last one of us, whether we follow you or not. And we thank you for this model from the early church. We thank you for the consistent pattern that we see of the word, which is about Jesus being proclaimed by your people. Give us strength to do the same even today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we're going to talk about is um, noticing the, the, the disruption to the status quo that leads to violence. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out from Antioch in Syria, uh, up on the right side of the map, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the Red Arrows. And they stopped in Cyprus on the island, chapter 13, where a Roman ruler had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They moved on to um, Pisidian Antioch in modern-day Turkey, also the chapter 13 um, label there, where Paul preaches a sermon. It's the first of his that's recorded for us in Scripture. And people come to faith mostly Gentiles, and a largely Jewish crowd forms a mob and leads others to kick Paul and Barnabas out of town. Um, how did they take this? Near stoning. The end of chapter 13 tells us, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Why that kind of reaction? To almost getting killed and being driven out of town. Because, we said last week, any advance of the gospel stirs up opposition. It's a sign that the gospel is disrupting the status quo because the religious power brokers uh, and Satan and his forces are upset that Jesus is being proclaimed, that lives are being changed, that the status quo is being disrupted. In chapter 14, the team moves on to Iconium, about 100 miles to the southeast. And verse 1 says, as usual, they start ministry in the Jewish synagogue. A great number of Jews and Gentiles believe, again. But there's more opposition led by the Jewish people. Another death threat, so the missionaries move on. Why, why do we find this pattern of resistance? particularly from those who are uh, from a Jewish background. If we connect chapters 13 and 14, the entirety of Paul's first missionary journey, we know that Paul, um, who had been one of the most learned and influential rabbis of his time, Paul knew his Old Testament as well as anyone and adapted his message by using Old Testament references and pointing to the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, the fulfillment of every anticipation by uh, God's uh, ancient people. And to these Jewish folks, he, in a nutshell, says this repeatedly in these synagogues, what you're looking for has come. 
He just doesn't look like you expected him to look like. Demonstrating weakness and humility. Accomplishing victory through his cross rather than with a sword. The Jewish religion had become lost in ritual. It had become lost in man-made moral codes, in political alliances with the Roman Empire. Strength was rewarded, not weakness. Human effort and self-discipline to earn glory for self rather than returning glory to God. And so when this former rabbi shows up and says, end of chapter 13, you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. You can't be made right by God, with God, by doing the right things, by, by being good, by following the law, only through faith in Jesus, the God-man who suffered and died in your place by suffering hell on the cross, which you deserve, only through him can your sins be forgiven. You cannot do anything to earn salvation because it has been done by Christ. And your efforts and your sacrifices and your discipline are actually displeasing to God. Offensive at its core to these Jewish believers listening in these synagogues to this rabbi. Imagine working your tail off in high school, getting into college, working a a job to pay your way through, being exhausted, piling up huge debt, and then being told by potential employers, I don't really care whether you have a college degree or not. If you have one, I don't really care at all whether it's an Ivy League school or a no-name little country college. I'll treat every applicant Um, the same, and, and perhaps it seems like there's a randomness to it. Nothing you valued and poured yourself into, uh, you're told, will bring the reward that you have been chasing. And worst of all, your ultimate success is completely out of your hands. The, the people who were best at following religious law They could never accomplish what they desired, to be cleansed of sin, to be forgiven, to be made right with God. They were failing, Paul exposes, they were failing just as much as the irreligious, immoral, average people in the Roman Empire. To be told that your record, your hard work, your moral trophies are all in vain, well, I think you and I would kick these guys out of town as well for disrupting our status quo, for telling us that everything we've worked hard at and succeeded at actually is failing to accomplish anything we're chasing after. And they resort to violence. You don't have to be religious to find this kind of message disruptive to your status quo. The gospel says to you, you are looking for meaning and status, and belonging, and power, and influence, and pleasure, and treasure, whatever will bring you lasting joy, but you're looking in all the wrong places. He has come with all His promises to give you all that you are created perfectly to enjoy now and for eternity. He just doesn't look like you've expected Him to look. It just doesn't look like what you're chasing after, and you think is your real treasure. And, and so the church's job from, from Acts until today, until the end of time, is to tell the true story of how all of humanity, all of us, um, chase after God's substitutes 
but that God, in His grace and mercy, in time and space, has responded even to the rejection of His people and our sin and our rebellion against Him by providing His own Son to be rejected on the cross on behalf of sinful people who believe in this Savior, Jesus. The gospel tells us, and the church's job throughout all of history now is to proclaim that Jesus is living bread to satisfy every hunger, that Jesus is living water that quenches every thirst, that Jesus is the bridegroom who loves perfectly, and He is the one in whom are hidden every, uh, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If Paul's message disrupts the status quo, then Paul's actions with this guy in chapter 14, verse 8, reverses the status quo, and that leads to a frenzy. In Lystra, the first person that's described is a crippled man who was lame from birth and had never walked. Three redundant descriptions that pretty much tell us the same thing, but emphasize repetitively his helplessness, his weakness, the, the fact that for all of his life he has been utterly dependent on other people. Paul miraculously heals him, and the crowd instinctively starts to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods in human form. The irony is that they're identified as the false gods that they've come to expose. We, we've said throughout Acts, looking back into the spring when we started the series, that miraculous signs confirm God's word. They never stand on their own. They're never raw displays of power. They're tools to confirm the Word of God as true. And the reason we see them uh, so often early on in the book of Acts, and then less so as Acts unfolds, and then even less so in the, the books of the New Testament that were written later in the first century, is that early on, truth was being established in the face of competing worldviews. Truth was being proclaimed, and it was being challenged and rejected and the apostles were given this power to authenticate the word of God that they were speaking and teaching as true above all other competing ideologies. It's the same reason, this, this uh, decreasing frequency, it's the same reason we see um, more miraculous signs today pop up in developing countries and spiritually dark areas of the world where the Scriptures and the people of God are not available or present enough to affirm what is true against every other claim to truth. Well, we'll notice the detail in, in verse 9. Um, he listened to Paul, this lame guy, as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called, up, called out, stand up. This is just like chapter 3, when the Apostle Peter is at the temple courts, and he looks directly at this crippled beggar, notices him, and heals him. In that message, I shared with you a story from my high school years about Brother Mike, my high school history teacher. Some of you remember that. Um, I won't go into all the details again, but 27 years later, it's still seared in my eyeballs, and I can hear his voice in my brain. Are you looking at Brother 
<laughs> just maniacal eyes looking at you. Yes, sir, we're, we're looking right at you, boring holes right into your being with our attention. Because Brother Mike knew that eye contact met, meant attention and interest. Eye contact. And, and that makes this scene all the more striking because this guy was the most insignificant person in the crowd, from a worldly perspective at least. Couldn't walk, fully dependent on other people financially and, and physically, just a beggar, a nobody, a drain on the local economy. And Paul, the important apostle who is doing God's work, Paul stops his sermon and looks right at the man. It, it's a word, look, that could be translated, Paul stared at the man. There was an intensity. This wasn't just a glance. Oh, yeah, hey, I, I noticed just that guy sitting over there begging. It, he, he stopped and, and gave all of his undivided attention, looking intently, staring at this guy. Brother Mike knew so much about attention and interest are communicated through the eyes. And again, back in chapter 3, early in the spring, I shared this plea, and I'll share it again. Put down your phones, especially over dinner. Look at each other. Share life. If you have no idea how to sit down at dinner with friends or with family members and look at each other and share life, don't handle the awkwardness by going right back to the digital device. Deal with the awkwardness. Learn how to relate. Learn how to share. Learn how to ask good questions. Life on life. And, and um, experience something richer than just browsing the internet. Paul stops what he's doing, stares at this man, and communicates life and love through the gospel. Uh, There's a a spiritual component here to the looking because there's a different word. Paul looked and then he saw. What did he see? That this man has faith. There's something interesting about a crippled man, again, being highlighted in Scripture because a guy like this has something to teach us about dependence, about humility, He has nothing to brag about. He doesn't need to learn to let go and let God. He only knows how to let others, especially God, care for him. And the flip side of that coin is that the stronger you are, the more accomplished you are, the more self-sufficient you are, able to be independent, no thank you, I don't need any help kind of living, which characterizes a lot of us. The stronger you are, the more difficult, dependent, humility-driven faith becomes. A man crippled, lame from birth, who had never walked in his life, has something to teach us about the basics of faith. And so the gospel, which announces that God is making all things new through resurrection power, gives this man a foretaste of glory. His disability and defects disappear, and he's made whole. Thirdly, we uh, look at the big picture of what Paul and Barnabas are doing here on this trip. 
uh, and um, notice that they're planting and strengthening by grace. Th- this crowd in Lystra is different than any other crowd they've encountered, so far at least. Um, it- it's a pagan crowd. And, and that's not a, a detrimental uh, label. It-, it simply means that this crowd uh, of worshipers will worship any god who will give them what they want. They're not mon- monotheists. Um, they, they worship the, the gods of the Greek pantheon, they, the gods of nature, and you have a new god to offer us that can do something for us, Paul and Barnabas. We said it was ironic that they're treated as gods when they went to Lystra to preach against false worship. And so to this co- audience, Paul again adapts his message. He doesn't go to the Old Testament scriptures because he's not in the synagogue anymore. He appeals to common experience. And here's the heart of the chapter, starting in verse 15. He says, we're only men like you, and we bring you good news. Literally, we evangelize you. That's all you're doing if you engage in evangelism. Ace class, 10 a.m. for adults right here in the sanctuary. We bring you good news. We evangelize you. By, By doing what? By telling you to turn. Because conversion, initial faith, and any spiritual growth involve always a turning from, they say, worthless things to the living God, the creator of all things. Turning is repentance. That's what the word means. And, and turning always uh, involves turning away from the false and turning to the truth, turning away from what is death and turning to that which leads to life. This mini-sermon Uh, has the feel of some things that Paul will write to the Romans in his letter much later in life. In fact, at at the very end of his life. And and let me point out some um, parallels here. In in verse 16 of this mini-sermon, he says, In the past, God let all nations go their own way. And in Romans chapter 1, um, uh, we, we, we read this phrase over and over, three times. God gave them over to their sin. In the past, he, he, he let people do their thing. He didn't restrain as much as he could have. God gave them over. But, verse 17, even in the midst of that, he provided testimony, evidence of his common grace, his care for humanity, rain, crops, food, the, the beauty of creation. And that, again, it foreshadows Romans 1, verses 19 to 20. God's power and divine nature have been clearly seen by all of humanity, so that uh, we are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1. And then he continues in this mini-sermon. Um, well, he doesn't continue, but what we see in verse 18, the instinctive response of the people. They still want to worship Paul and Barnabas. They don't care what, what he says. And in Romans chapter 1, we read, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's the fundamental basis for any idolatry. Worshiping and serving created things, including people, Paul and Barnabas here, rather than the creator. Making stuff and circumstances and relationships ultimate, worshiping and serving them, rather than seeing God himself revealed most fully in his son Jesus as ultimate, and worshiping and serving Him alone. The apostles reject this worship. The people don't care. 
they're in the midst of throwing a festival of worship. In the meantime, verse 19, Jews from Antioch and Iconium chased down Paul and Barnabas. These are the previous stops on the missionary journey. One of these towns is over 100 miles to the northwest. They show up. They heard these guys are still up to these disrupting the status quo activities. And here's the bird's eye view of what's happening. Uh, here in ch- in, at, at the end of chapter 14, the gospel exposes irreligion for seeking in the created world what can only be found in a relationship of faith with the creator, what can only be found in him and from him. And previously in chapter 13 into chapter 14, there the gospel exposed mere religion in these synagogues that was seeking salvation through humanity's efforts and accomplishments when salvation can only be found in the perfect and completed effort of the Son of Man himself, Jesus. The gospel undermines the foundation of of each of these worldviews so forcefully that the people have to chase down Paul and teach him a lesson. He was considered Hermes here by the pagans, messenger of the gods, and by trying to kill the messenger, they're rejecting the divine message giver himself. Paul survives, miraculously. He's left for dead after a stoning. The next day he gets up, and he moves on to Derby. But then he comes back for more. He goes back to every single town he had been chased out of and left for dead. Why? Irrational? Masochistic? Just flat-out dumb? You know, on the morning of 9-11, after the Twin Towers were struck... Secret Service literally carried Vice President Cheney out of the White House into the bunker uh, underground for safekeeping. And President Bush was in an elementary school. You remember the, the picture of him reading to the little kids. And the Secret Service ushered him out of the elementary school to the waiting Air Force One, put him in the air, circled over Florida while they figured out what to do, and then landed in Louisiana, of all people. He was not going to D.C., because D.C. was under attack. D.C. was where the, the enemies had their sights set. But Paul, like a hero firefighter, runs right back into the burning house. Why? Well, these guys, Paul and Barnabas, were really church planting as they uh, showed up in each of these towns for the first time and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And on the return visits... We're told they strengthened the disciples, verse 22, and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. And no surprise, said we must endure hardships. (laughs) This is part of following after our suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah. And then in these same return visits, they appointed slash installed slash ordained elders, verse 23. Literally, in the original Greek language, they, they appointed Presbyterians. That's the word in the Greek. Uh, leadership by elders, as, as is found in our church, isn't a Presbyterian practice. It's the biblical practice. And um, these return trips weren't optional. They were necessary for these embryos of little believers uh, collected together to 
grow up and mature into self-sustaining, sending churches on their own. Paul had to go back. Let me connect some of these practices with uh, things that happen here at GRC, especially if you're new to our our community. Um, Every spring, we ordain, install, commission new elders, deacons, and deaconesses to these positions. People who have um, been nominated, then trained over a number of months, then examined by the session, and they pass the examination, and then uh, they are presented before the membership for election. And only then, after they've been qualified for this ministry to which they've been called, are they ordained, installed, commissioned as leaders of our church. Um, On church planting, we ourselves are a church plant started by Redeemer Manhattan in 1999. And we've had the privilege over the years of uh, helping to plant Redeemer Montclair down in Essex County. Uh, two years into our existence, and then 10 years into our existence, in 2009, we planted All Souls up in New York State. We'll continue to plant churches, but our, our next phase of growth is to go deeper, to uh, secure stability for the next generation so that we can be increasingly a launch pad to train new pastors and church planters and missionaries and Sunday school teachers and lay leaders and disciplers and counselors, and worship leaders. Well, Paul and Barnabas make it back to Antioch, the new gospel headquarters in Syria, verse 26, where they say, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. They had been committed to the grace of God when they had been sent out. They had been sent with this full understanding that they needed to go as dependent workers. Grace, undeserved favor. Can't take credit for it. God working through them. They they said they reported all that God had done, verse 27, through them. They knew that they needed God's generosity to do anything when they had been sent out particularly the filling of His Spirit in them and the renewing power of His Spirit in those to whom they were going to minister, that, that words would be carried along with Spirit power and, and bring about change. This stuff is not possible with merely human effort. But that doesn't mean we can throw out the baby with the bathwater because the interesting thing is the very beginning of chapter 14, it says Paul and Barnabas spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Huh. Makes you wonder if they had, like, preached bad sermons, if God had said, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> I can't save anybody without good sermons. No. We, we, we can't go that far, but for some reason, God invests human effort with a, a measure of influence in the effectiveness of gospel proclamation. That's why we, we uh, examine and test um, pastoral candidates, for example, to qualify them for the work to which they feel called. But nothing truly impactful and lasting happens without the Spirit's power according to the perfect will of God. That's what the apostles are affirming at the end of the day. We might preach great sermons. We might be effective um, uh, debaters and persuaders. That's a word. But without God's Spirit, nothing happens. Dependence on the grace of God means that prayer has to have a role. 
Sometimes we wonder, well, if God's sovereign, what good does my prayer do? Prayers um, uh, impact, prayers affect, prayers urgency. Uh, So much of it has significance in terms of what it does in the person praying, cultivating humility, beggar-like humility. I have nothing, you have everything. Cultivating that uh, dependence and awareness that God has all things and He must give me what I need to do His work. That's part of the instrumentality of prayer. Um, and, And as we look back on what God has done, verse 27, how God has strengthened in His grace this church that used to be a little church plant, wondering if it was going to survive uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And as we look ahead in anticipation of how God will mature us, we recognize it's God's work. It's His Spirit that must be active, moving and shaking, and prayer more than effort or skill that has to be the foundation of what God will bring to His people. This is the pattern of Acts. We've said it from Acts chapter 1. Humility, sometimes driven by fear and anxiety. The apostles with Jesus leaving, what do we do now? They go to their knees. Do you look at crisis and trial and suffering and uncertainty and moments of fear as opportunities for you to realize you're a beggar? You are utterly dependent on another for everything that is important. And if we follow the pattern of Acts, we, do, we want, do we want to be a, um, an Acts kind of New Testament church? Every biblical church would say that. We want to see God do things. Well, then we have to follow the pattern. Humility, independence that lead to prayer. And God answers that with the filling of His Spirit. And the filling of His Spirit enables us to proclaim God's Word that is all about Jesus. And we disrupt the status quo, which, does, which means that the way ahead is not easy. It's not just an you know, easy street. Uh, left for dead, town after town after town, and Paul goes back for more. Why? Because resurrection power will have the last word. Let's believe that. Let's pray for it. Lord, you are making all things new. And so often it's hard to see that, Lord. It's hard to believe that. But your, your, your scripture that will not pass away, these words are true. Jesus spoke them. Heaven and earth may pass away, but these words will not. And we claim that promise. And we ask, Lord, lead us into humility and dependence. Show us that we're beggars, cripples, who've never walked. And lead us to desperately, dependently cry out in prayer that we might receive the filling of your Spirit, that we might do your work. And then we might say at the end of the day, God has accomplished all of this. Glory be to God. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.